Well, thank you, Paul and team, for leading. It was just wonderful. You know, I'd also like to just commend to you the morning watch. I was talking with Pastor Adam and Angie Brown, who are Pastor of the Week here, and Adam was uh, telling me that at morning watch this week, they're just learning to pray through Scripture. Today, as he prayed for us, he, did you notice he just prayed through the elements of the Lord's Prayer? And I think tomorrow he said maybe a psalm. And uh, I would just encourage you, if you can make that uh, 7.30 to 8, is that right, Adam? It's a time maybe to stretch. If some of us, we have a, a routine. We have a little trail we go down whenever we pray. And, you know, it's kind of the same old, same old. And this will be a way to expand our praying by linking it more to Scripture. So I'd commend you to that. And then, uh, ladies, today at 2, my wife Linda gets to speak to you. I think she's done this before. And uh, with fear and trepidation, but with great joy, she's looking forward to being with uh, some of you who can join at it, too. So we got a lot going today at Fair Havens. Uh, in the evenings... Uh, I get to speak in the morning and evening, and the evenings, just to talk about tonight and the next four nights, or actually Wednesday night's a break, but the four of the next five nights, I'm going to be speaking, kind of linking into the Olympic theme. Some of us gathered in the, uh, you know, the tuck shop there last night and watched uh, Usain Bolt uh, just kind of blow, uh, he, he had the afterburners on right at the end, and he just pulled ahead of the Canadian and the American, and it was pretty exciting. And I, I don't know if you're an Olympic fan, we make it almost a national holiday in our house. So since we can't be watching the Olympics from uh, seven to eight, we'll at least be talking about that theme. And so that's tonight, and I'll talk about going for gold, looking at four different passages over this week that talk about an athletic metaphor and how that is to help us spiritually. So that's where we're going in the evenings. The mornings, my theme is a journey towards joy. And if you were here yesterday, I kind of introduced the topic by going to the book of Acts, Acts 16, where Paul talks about his experience. Luke writes it down about Paul's experience in, this, in the city of Philippi, where he was thrown into jail and gave his jailhouse praise to God. Well, he would later write a letter back to the people of Philippi, and in that little letter, Paul talks to them about joy, about unity. There's a number of themes, but one of the major themes that runs through the book of Philippians is joy. So here's what I'd like to do with us this, this week in the mornings. I'd like to talk to you about rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord, finding joy in the Lord. And the way I would like us to do that is we're going to go to the book of Philippians and we'll look at some passages in there where Paul explains what does it look like to rejoice in the Lord. That's where we're headed this week, a journey towards joy. And the verse that I'm kind of keen off of is a verse that's or a statement that's repeated actually several times in the book of Philippians. One of the more well-known statements out of the book, and that is the little phrase, you can finish it with me, rejoice in the Lord always, always, rejoice in the Lord always. Now that, that is a very inviting phrase. Wouldn't you love to have a set of your life that you lived a life that was rejoicing in the Lord always? I think those of us who are followers of Christ, that's an aspiration for me. I would love to have that be true of me. But not only is it an inspiring, inviting phrase, it's a bit of an intimidating statement. Because when we hear the scripture say to us, rejoice in the Lord always, we know that we don't always do that. We don't rejoice in the Lord always. We don't even rejoice always. And so we wonder, what does, it, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord always? 
in Romans chapter 9, I think it's Romans 9, 10, or 11, right at the beginning, Paul talks about, he says, I'm telling the truth, God is my witness, I have unceasing sorrow in my heart for my people Israel who have not followed Christ. So wait a second, Paul, you're telling us you have unceasing sorrow in your heart, and here in Philippians you're writing, Rejoice in the Lord always. Which is it, Paul? Is it unceasing sorrow or is it unending joy? So this week, what I'd like us to do is try to dive in and delve into the theme of rejoicing in the Lord and to develop around that a theology of rejoicing in the Lord. What does that mean? What does the Bible actually ask you and me to do? So we're going to try, as we look at these four passages in Philippians, to develop through the four passages a theology of rejoicing. That's what we believe. But I don't want to stop there. In addition to a theology of rejoicing in the Lord, we need a strategy for rejoicing in the Lord. We not only need beliefs, we need behaviors. So how do you implement this theology in ways that you actually do this as you go through the course of your day? What does it look like for a mom who has little kids uh, running around and she's chasing them and feeling a little bit kind of life never is still? What does it mean for her to rejoice in the Lord always? What does it mean for... What does it mean for a grandma or grandpa whose kids are now grown and gone and and feeling perhaps a little bit isolated? Health is not as good as it once was. The future is uncertain in some ways in terms of where they're going to live, where are they going to have to change out of their house? What does it mean in that context to rejoice in the Lord always? What does it mean for somebody who's in the middle of a busy career and sometimes they go to bed and wake up thinking about problems that are waiting for them at work? What does it mean for that person to rejoice in the Lord always? What are they supposed to believe about that? What are they supposed to do about that? Well, if you could use a little help on that like I can, then this is going to be a a week, hopefully, that we'll learn both a theology and a methodology for rejoicing in the Lord always. And as I mentioned, we're going to do that by putting together four passages in successive days where Paul specifically talks about rejoicing and gives us one aspect of it, and then another aspect, and another aspect, and another aspect, and hopefully by the time we finish on Friday morning, we can put it together and say, ah, so this is what it means to rejoice in the Lord, or at least this is a good part of what it means, and this is how I can do it. So that's where we're headed. Today I'm going to take you to the first of the four passages that's going to talk to us about one element of rejoicing in the Lord. And I got to warn you right off the top, this one may be a surprise to some of you. This may be surprising. This may be a bit stretching. If you were to make a short list, if I had you take a piece of paper and write down, what are the things that come to your mind when you think of rejoicing in the Lord? This one might not make your short list. Not because you disagree with it, just because you've never thought about it, or because you rarely think about it. But not not only is this one a bit surprising, I'm convinced that this one could be energizing. What we're going to learn today can help us, especially, especially if you're a person that tends to get wrapped up inside your own world. If you're a person that tends, when life gets difficult, you pull inward, and suddenly the horizons of your world get shrunk down to your own experience. And you're tempted to give way to self-pity 
or you're tempted to give in to kind of a loss of hope, and you know that when things get hard, you pull in and you lose joy. If that's sometimes a tendency for you, this one could be energizing. This one could be helpful. Because today in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to talk about rejoicing in the advance of the gospel. Rejoicing in the advance of the gospel. And whether you've thought about this before or whether this is brand new, today I want to show you how this one idea, rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, is a part of learning to rejoice in the Lord always. So would you take your Bibles and join me in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in Philippians all week. Today we're in chapter 1, picking it up in verse 12 and going through the end of the chapter. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. And before uh, we dig in, I always like to ask the Lord's help for me and for us. So would you join me as I pray for us? Father in heaven, I thank you that your word speaks to us in clear and compelling ways that both correct us, rebuke us, but also train us and equip us to be thoroughly prepared for every good work you have for us. And I'm praying today for my brothers and sisters and myself. Lord, we confess to you that we are a people that don't always brim over with joy. The events of our lives, the difficult circumstances, the hurtful people, the uncertainties of our future, Lord, sometimes those so cloud us that we can't see the sunshine of your glory or your love. And so I'm asking today that you would help us. Help us to understand in practical, everyday terms, what does it mean for us to live in the joy of the Lord? Help me to clearly explain your word, and by your spirit, would you acutely apply it to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. So let me pick up for you. Let me read just a little bit where we hear Paul rejoicing the Lord. I'm going to read specifically verses 12 to 18. Follow along as I go. Paul writes this, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So there's the theme of advancing the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Now, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here in prison, he's talking about, I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. There at the end of uh, verse 18, or kind of the middle part, he goes on to actually say at the end of verse 18, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. There's Paul saying, I am rejoicing that Christ is being preached. I am rejoicing that the gospel is advancing. Now, I imagine that that doesn't strike you as real startling news, breaking news, that Paul is rejoicing that the gospel is advancing. 
I mean, you think, well, that's what Paul was all about. He was all about the gospel going out. So the fact that it's going forward and he's rejoicing, that, that makes sense to me. But wait, what may be surprising to you is what Paul says rejoicing in the advance of the gospel does in him and for him. As we go through this text, what we're going to see is Paul says this, I'm rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, and God is using my rejoicing in that to actually benefit me. Paul is doing some things in my soul, in my heart, because I'm rejoicing in the advance of the gospel. This, this, this choice I'm making to rejoice in the advance of the gospel is spilling back over blessing on my life. And in these verses, verses 12 to 30, Paul actually highlights three ways that rejoicing in the advance of the gospel is helping him, is changing him, is lifting him up, is bringing him joy. So what I want to do is walk through our text, show you the three ways that if you and I are rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, it actually comes back and strengthens and encourages and and lifts us up. Let me show them to you, and I think this is where it gets quite encouraging for us. The first one is going to come for us in verses 12 to 14. And in verses 12 to 14, Paul is going to say this, rejoicing in the advance of the gospel does, here's the first good thing it does, it gives perspective in difficult circumstances. If you and I will learn to rejoice as we see the gospel advance, it will actually go to work in our perspective in life, and it will give us perspective, especially if we're in the middle of difficult circumstances. Rejoicing in the advance of the gospel gives perspective in difficult circumstances. That's the first thing he tells us. Uh, See, the, the believers in Philippi knew that Paul was in jail. They knew some things about Paul. They knew he was in jail in Rome. In fact, they knew he was in need in jail because later on in the book, we read that they sent Epaphroditus with some money to go help him. So they sent money to Paul. They knew he was in need. But what they didn't know, and that Paul writes to tell them, is that Paul saw his being in prison as actually furthering the advance of the gospel. They didn't get the fact that Paul saw God was doing something good through this. Let me show it to you. Verse 12, Paul writes this, Now I want you to know, brothers, in other words, you don't know this already, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul's saying, you may not know this, but what's happened to me is it served to advance the gospel. Now, if you put yourself in the congregation of Philippi, imagine you're in the congregation of Philippi. You know that your number one missionary, the guy who planted your church, has been arrested and he's rotting in a jail in Rome. Would you think that's good news or bad news? Like, that'd be bad news, right? You'd be thinking, this, this is a travesty. I mean, this is the guy. He's our superstar. He's out there planting churches, preaching the gospel, and now he's locked up. This is really a hit on the gospel. The whole missionary movement is being halted. So Paul writes them to say, hey, listen, you've got to look at this from a little different perspective. What's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. You say, Paul, are you just trying to put a good spin on a bad situation? He says, no, no, let me explain. Look at verse 13. As a result, it has become clear Throughout the whole palace guard, it's become uh, throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. 
Because of my change, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So Paul said, let me tell you two ways that me being in prison is actually serving to advance the gospel. Number one, I'm having all kinds of witnessing opportunities here in jail. Right? He says in verse 13, he says, everyone everyone in the palace guard knows why I'm here. They know that I'm here because of the gospel. By the way, here's a funny little aside. In the book of Colossians, which was written roughly the same time as the book of Philippians, Paul actually asked the Colossian believers to pray that he is in jail, that God would give him an open door. Now, if that was me, and I was asking believers to pray for an open door, I know which kind of open door I'd be praying for, right? Like like you did in Philippi, open the doors of the prison. Another earthquake would be just fine, Lord. But in Colossians, if you read Colossians 4, 2 and 3, the open door he's talking about is an open door for the word. He's saying, here I am in prison. Please ask God to give me an open door so that I can proclaim the word of God fearlessly. So he's saying to these folks and the Colossians, listen, I know that it looks like a setback, but God is using this because here in Philippi, I'm, or in the, pri- in the prison in Rome, just like in Philippi, I'm a testimony for Christ. That's the first way the gospel is advancing. Second thing is in verse 14, he says, the gospel is advancing, verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Paul says this, here's another way God's using my imprisonment to move the gospel out. There's a number of brothers who've heard that I'm locked up, so they're stepping up. They know I can't go, so they're going. Now, I want you to think about that. You see what Paul is doing here? He's rejoicing in the Lord in a bad situation. Is Paul happy to be in prison? Probably not. Is he happy that God is doing something even though he's in prison? Yes. He's happy that the gospel is going forward. When you rejoice in the advance of the gospel, it starts to give you a new perspective on difficult circumstances. Let me tell you how this works in our lives. Uh, Five years ago, five years ago, just about five years ago now, I was diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer. I was pastoring a church up in Ottawa, and uh, hey guys, I think you can flip to the next slide if you haven't already. That's, we're kind of on point number one. There you go. So I, I'm diagnosed with prostate cancer, and um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's, like, it's a bad thing. At least that's how I would have put it in the bad thing, call it. You know, I'm not, I'm not happy about cancer for anyone. So I was set aside for a time for some surgeries and a bunch of radiation treatments, But I would tell you that, and Linda would vouch for this, never in our life did we have more opportunities to share our faith with people than in that season. We had cultivated relationships with our neighbors uh, up and down our street, and many of them uh, had heard the gospel from us. Others didn't want to hear it. Some had come to church with us. Most of them didn't want to go to church. But I tell you what, when I got sick, there wasn't one of them that wasn't eager to say, how you doing? And I said, you know, can I tell you how I'm doing? I don't feel strong, but I do feel strengthened. Can I tell you why that is? And I got to sit in homes and on doorsteps and tell people, this is where my faith is strengthening me. This is a frightening thing for me. 
but can I tell you how God has given me hope? And one after another listened, and Linda was in homes, and we were talking, and I thought about this. We had tried for months and months and months with some of them to find a way to get to speak to them about our faith, and it wasn't until I was locked up in treatment that the doors opened. Now, that doesn't make me rejoice in the cancer but I rejoiced in what God did. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm not necessarily rejoicing I'm in prison, but I am rejoicing God has given me a chance to witness for him even here. So let me ask you, what situation are you locked up in right now that you don't like? Could it be that part of what God is doing is bringing you to a point where you know you need help, others know you need help, so you can speak to them of the help that God gives you if you open your mouth? I used to go to radiation treatments and we'd be sitting around a bunch of, these are all brothers, all men, sitting there waiting to get radiated. And so I would, all, I would bring a little steps to peace with God with me, Billy Graham's little track, and I have it in my pocket. And I'd look at one of these guys who I didn't know, and I would always ask the same question. I'd say, so how are you doing on the inside? And some of them would kind of blow it off, I'm fine, I'm going to beat this thing. But a number of them would say to me, eh, good days, bad days. And then I'd say, I, I feel that way too. Can I tell you what's given me hope? I never had one person say, no, I don't need any hope. I don't need to hear that. They'd say, yeah, well, it's given you hope. And I'd pull out this little booklet, and I usually didn't have time to go through. I'd say, can I give you this? This little booklet capsulates, it's by Billy Graham. You may have heard of Billy Graham. It capsulates what the Bible says about hope, and this is giving me hope. And I would give these out. God gave me open doors like I'd never had before. Paul is saying, I'm in prison, but the gospel's going forward. His perspective is saying, God is even using this. And the second thing he says is this. And not only am, am I having opportunity here in prison, God, verse 14, is strengthening the other guys so that they're stepping up. That's what he says in verse 14, right? Most of the brothers have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously. They know I'm in prison. They're stepping up. Uh, this summer, Linda and I were in Thailand with uh, missionaries with Overse uh, Overseas Missionary Fellowship, OMF. And these missionaries uh, were, are part of a mission agencies. Uh, I see Wayne here. A great agency that was started many years ago by Hudson Taylor. You know that name? China Inland Mission. They would tell you the story of how there was a season, I forget the exact year, when all of the missionaries were kicked out of China. You remember that? Some of you lived long enough to remember that story. They're all booted out. And initially, we in the West thought, this is a travesty. What's going to happen to the Chinese church? Well, most of the brothers were encouraged to step up and the ones who had led them to faith were now gone, and God gave them the faith. And now the church in China is one of the strongest and largest sections of the body of Christ in the world. You see, when you and I learn to rejoice in the advance of the gospel, it starts to give us a different perspective of our circumstances, that God is working even in difficult situations to both give us opportunities and raise others up. That's the first thing Paul says. But the second one is the one that I think you'll find even more interesting. 
You see, now as we keep going, verse, if we've gone through verse 14, as we look now through verses 15 to 18, Paul's going to tell you one that, that we never talk about this one in church. So you've got to hang on for this one because it's a little touchy, but it's important. Paul writes about it. A second way that rejoicing in the advance of the gospel helps us to have more joy is this. Not only does it give us perspective in difficult circumstances, but secondly, it guards our hearts from hurtful colleagues. If you will rejoice in the advance of the gospel, it will actually help guard your heart from hurtful Christians, from hurtful colleagues. Look what Paul says. You'll see it, verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Do you get the story of what's going on? Paul says, here I am in prison. And a bunch of other people have stepped up and said, well, Paul's out of commission, so maybe I'm going to step up, and I will now become a missionary. I'll become a spokesman. I will speak up. Paul says, some of the people speaking up, some of the people who've stepped up are good-hearted people. They know I'm in jail, and they're saying, Paul's our guy, but he's out, and maybe God could use me. And they're speaking the word of God out of love. But then Paul says, but there are other people. And yes, they're stepping up. And they're large and in charge, and they're out there preaching, and their motives are horrible. Do you see what he says? They preach, verse 16, or verse 15, they preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. In other words, they were envious of Paul. They were like competitive with Paul. And they see an opportunity. Paul's out of commission. Hey, this is my chance. This is my chance to step in and fill the void. In fact, it's worse than just envy and rivalry. It's downright malice. Paul says, this is, this is actually hard to read. Verse 17 he says, the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, catch this next phrase, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. They're not just hoping to replace Paul, they're hoping to wound him. Like there's malice here. It's not just that they want to kind of be the new Paul. They want Paul to hurt over this. They want to add trouble to his chains. He's already in trouble. They want to put salt in the wounds. Now, that's a brutal thing to hear. But here's the reality. If you're in ministry for any length of time, you will find that you will bump into some people who are like those folks. Thankfully, many, many people you will be around as Christians and as colleagues will be in that category of they're preaching Christ out of love, and if you're knocked down, they're stepping up because they just want to help out. But you will run into some who actually preach Christ out of selfish ambition. The reason they're in ministry is because it's for them. And they're competitive, and they'd like to replace others, and they would even like to, if they can, put it in your face. Now, that can be one of the most disillusioning and one of the most discouraging parts of Christian ministry. 
It can devastate you. In fact, if you're not prepared for this, you could actually say, good night, this whole thing, this whole thing just is something I don't want to be a part of. There are people like this. And your own heart can grow hard and bitter, and you can spend your time grinding your teeth and having these internal arguments with people that you see as vicious and as posers. But Paul didn't do that, did he? Look at it again. Look at what he says at the end of verse 18. This is, this is incredible to me. After he says, these people are out to hurt me, verse 18, he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I what? I rejoice. Okay, so now we can start to develop a theology of rejoicing. As I said, this week we're going to try to build a theology of rejoicing. Here's a couple elements you're going to want to put in your theology of rejoicing. First of all, rejoicing in the, rejoicing in the Lord. First of all, it is, first of all, volitional before it's emotional. Right? Rejoicing in the Lord is something we choose to do, not just something we always feel like doing. Paul says, in this, I will rejoice. He's determined. I'm rejoicing in this. Paul, did you feel great of fact that there's some people out there who have the hate on for you and who are trying to hurt you? Paul would say, no, I don't feel great about that. But what I feel great about is they at least are getting the message right. And I will rejoice in that. Rejoicing in the Lord is volitional, something I choose to do, even at times when it's not emotional, something that I feel like doing. Paul did that. Here's another thing. Rejoicing in the advance of the gospel means that even when motives are wrong, if the message is right, I can still rejoice. Even if somebody's motives in preaching the gospel are are wrong, flawed, but their message is right, I can rejoice in that. Now, please hear this. That doesn't mean that Paul is excusing the motives. He's not exonerating these people who had lousy motives. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says there's coming a day when we will all stand before Christ, and it says, and the motives of men's hearts will be exposed, and everyone will be rewarded by Christ. There's coming a day when if I am serving the Lord out of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, and I'm trying to do it because I'm just trying to get my name out there, one day I will give an account for that. And so these folks who were out there doing this wrong, they would stand before Jesus, and Paul knew that. He's not excusing that or blessing that or saying it's okay. But what Paul is saying is this, the gospel message, even when preached by an impure and flawed messenger, is still worthy of rejoicing in. Now, if they got the message wrong, Paul would not rejoice. Galatians chapter 1 tells you that. Like, if you, if you tinker with the gospel message and you preach it, Paul's not rejoicing in that. In fact, he calls down the harshest condemnation on people who corrupt the gospel message. But when somebody gives the gospel out, even if their heart's not right, Paul finds a reason to rejoice. Here's what's important about that. Doing so guarded his own heart, Right? Doing so because he could rejoice in the advance of the gospel. It kept him from being bitter at those who were hurting him. Brothers and sisters, those of you who serve in pastoral ministry or other vocational ministry, some of you are key leaders in your church. 
One of the things that will most knock you out of serving the Lord is becoming disillusioned and discouraged by being hurt by someone you look at and go, man, their motives are wrong. Those are rotten. And if you get, if you get tied up in your own little kind of uh, accusation world of thinking about that over and over and over, you can become a bitter and ineffective and unfruitful person. Paul says, don't do that. Here's what you do. You don't excuse the sin, but you rejoice in the gospel. Paul did that. So he rejoices in the gospel, gives him this new perspective on difficult circumstances, and it also guards his heart from difficult people, from hurtful colleagues. Which brings us to the third thing. There's another way that Paul says that rejoicing in the advance of the gospel actually benefited him. It comes out for us in verses 18 to 30. I'd put it this way. Paul says, rejoicing in the advance of the gospel also gives courage for an uncertain future. Gives courage for an uncertain future. Do you need courage in your life right now? Do you need courage for a future that you say, I don't know how this part of my life's going to play out? One of the things that will grant you courage is if you will rejoice in the advance of the gospel. Let me show you how that works out. Look at verse 18. The end end of verse 18, Paul says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and through the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. But whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you, In my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him, Since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. See, when Paul writes this, he's not sure what's going to happen to him. His future is uncertain. He's not sure if he's going to live or die. He's in prison. He knows he's going to have a trial. He's not sure if they're going to cut off his head or open the doors and let him go. In fact, you can see a little bit of the uh, toggling between, like, which, how's this thing going to go? Verse 19, he seems to say, I know I'm going to get out of here, right? Verse 19, through your prayers, what's that will turn out for my deliverance. But in verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that in no way will I be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So he's saying, well, I think I'm going to get out, but I could die, 
A little bit later, he says, I'm, verse 25, I'm convinced I'm coming back to see you. Verse 27, but whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul's not sure how this is going to play out for him. But because he's rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, it's given him courage. You say, how does it give him courage? Because it's giving him this courage that the gospel's going to go forward and God is going to take care of him whether he lives or dies. Verse 21, he says, if I die, I'm going to go be with Christ. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So Paul says, if God's will for me right now, this is the end, then actually it's going to be okay for me too because I will go to be with Christ. But if I live, he says, it's going to mean more fruitful service. So either way, I'm not sure how my story's going to play out, but God has it and I can trust him and now I'm just praying for courage as I'm rejoicing in what he's doing that he'll give me courage whichever way it goes. When you rejoice in the advance of the gospel, suddenly you see your own life in a new light. And you realize that the bigger story that your little story is a part of is the story of Christ and his gospel. And if you're about that, he's going to take care of you, whether it's by life or by death. And if he chooses to take you home, he's going to take you to be with himself, and that's far better, Paul says. But if he chooses to leave you here, he's going to give you more opportunities to spread the gospel. Either way, Paul says, I win. If I go to be with Christ, I win. If I stay here and serve you, I win. Because my life is about Christ, it's about his gospel, and so though my future seems uncertain, it actually is something that I can still be courageous in. Several years ago, my wife's sister uh, contracted cancer, and uh, she went through treatments, and just as she hit the five-year mark, which is kind of a milestone for all of us cancer survivors, and they're ready to throw a party for her, she got the news that the cancer was back and it was vicious and it was aggressive. Kathy, my, uh, my wife's sister, had been born with spina bifida and had lived in a wheelchair all her life, but had been the most independent, sunny, uh, courageous young lady you'd ever meet. She lived to be about 50-some years old. And when she heard she had cancer, again, initially, it just it hit her like it hits all of us. It just was crushing initially but not for long because Kathy knew that God was going to use her life as he had been using her life to advance his gospel. And she had been this testimony through her life and she knew that if the Lord took her home, she would be with Christ. And if he left her here, she would continue to serve Christ. And I saw a woman who faced her final years on earth with great courage. In fact, get this, she asked that on her tombstone, Philippians 1.21 would be printed. Only she wanted it to be a little changed. She wanted it to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is yippee. That's what she wanted. <laughs> now, the rest of her family said, I don't know if you should tinker with the Bible. So they, what they did is they went, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in parentheses, they wrote yippee. So that's, if you were to go to the graveside where Kathy's buried, you would see these words emblazoned on her tombstone. And as she, as she faced her final days, there was this courage and otherworldly courage in her. 
because she knew her life was about more than her life, and she knew that it was about this bigger story of the gospel and Christ's work in her, and she knew, like Paul, if he takes me home, I'm going to be with him. If he leaves me here, I'll continue to serve him. You see, when your life becomes more than about you, when it becomes about Christ and his mission and his gospel, it starts to change you. It starts to give you a new perspective on difficult circumstances. Suddenly, you don't just see them as a travesty. You start saying, well, how is God working in this situation for the, for the good of his gospel, for bringing people to Christ? It starts to guard your heart when you get hurt by other Christians. You can look at that. Instead of just hating those who seem to hate you, you say, you know what? I'm going to choose to rejoice even though it hurts me that the gospel is going forward because the gospel is bigger than me. And when you face a future that is uncertain, which, by the way, we all do, you'll be able to say, my life fits into this larger gospel story. My life is about Christ. It's about what he's doing in the world. And as long as he leaves me here, I'm going to give him my fruitful service. And when he takes me home, I'm going to be with him. Now I'm just praying you'll give me the courage whichever way this goes. You see, rejoicing in the advance of the gospel is not just for missionaries. It's not just for the spiritual elites who give their life to serve Christ. It's for all of us. And if you and I will start to say, Lord, I'm going to be on the lookout for where the gospel is growing. I'm going to look out in my church, and wherever I see it's in the Awana. There's, there's kids being brought into Christ in Awana. I'm rejoicing in that. It's in my neighborhood. I had the chance to talk to my neighbor about Christ. I'm rejoicing in that. And then when I hear other people sharing the faith, I rejoice in that. As more and more that becomes a source of joy for you, it does something powerful. Look at the summary of what it does. Final slide there, guys. Gives you perspective. Changes your perspective on life. Guards your heart. Gives you courage. You see, the joy of the Lord is not just this fuzzy, ethereal, kind of spiritually hazy thing. It's learning to say, I'm going to center what delights my soul in Christ and in his agenda. Because when I do that, it actually not only glorifies God, it comes back and it strengthens me. So what's the strategy for putting this into practice? Here's a starter for you. Why don't you go sometime today and think about who, where do you see the gospel going forward in your world? Is Here at Fair Havens, is it in your church? Is it in your family? Is it in your neighborhood? And then learn to say, wherever I see the gospel going forward, I'm going to start rejoicing in that. I'm going to tell God, God, I'm really glad to see that. And I'm hoping that as I begin to focus my life on what matters to you, you're going to start doing those things in me that you did in Paul. Well, that's the first of four passages that help us build a theology and methodology of rejoicing in the Lord. Tomorrow, we'll talk about, in chapter three, what does it look like to rejoice in Christ himself? What does that look like? But let me pray for you, and after I'm done, uh, just remind Band of Brothers, uh, you guys meet in 15 minutes if you want to be part of that. And then uh, for the rest of us, we're looking forward to a day. But can I encourage you today, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the advance of his gospel. 
Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the events that are happening around. We think of the Band of Brothers. We think of the women's tea. We think of all the interactions we're going to have over meals. May over it all, Lord, be us lifting our hearts to praise you, looking for ways that you are working through flawed people like us to bring your gospel to the world. May we rejoice in that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.